Amen. Church, it's good as always to worship with you. What a blessing it is to continue to retell that story. Uh, I'm reminded of Palm Sunday when we sing that song, Hosanna. Remember, that was how they greeted him as he came into Jerusalem, and then just days later, uh, he would die for our sins at Calvary. I invite you to turn with me in Scripture this morning to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27. We're going to continue our sermon series back in Genesis. We had a couple of weeks off there, Palm Sunday, and of course Easter Sunday, and then we had the cantata last week, and so I'm excited to jump back into Genesis with you and continue our journey through this wonderful book. You know, by the time we get to Genesis 27, we find a couple of characters that are familiar to us by now, but we find them in a difficult spot. Uh, We just recap for you, we've been walking through Genesis, and we looked at Abraham, and of course, Isaac is who we're at now, and then things are beginning to transition in chapter 27 and 28 to Jacob, and so that's why if you're taking notes, you had the listening guide there, it's, this is part one of two, and so part one, we're looking at this stolen blessing in chapter 27, and hold on to that because in chapter 28, we're looking at God's generous grace. And just so you're aware of my generosity to you regarding your time, this was initially going to be one sermon from chapter 27 through chapter 28, and all God's people said, amen. Okay, yes. And so we we cut it in half when I realized how much there was to cover right here in chapter 27. You know, when we get to this chapter, we find that things have changed quite a bit for Isaac and Rebekah. Their marriage, you could say, was on the rocks, to say the least. Uh, You know, it could have been something to do with what happens in chapter 26. Remember in chapter 26, Isaac lies to uh, the people of this place and and says that Rebekah was his sister. Word of advice for all the men in the room, never tell someone that your wife is actually your sister. Uh, One, it's weird, okay? And two, I don't think she appreciates that very much. And so uh, we don't know. A lot of things transpire in their lives and things aren't going well for them. And this was such a change uh, from the way they had started out. I want you to remember the love story we saw unfold in Genesis chapter 24. Remember that God was the one who provided a wife for Isaac through his unusual revelation to Abraham's servant. Don't you remember that? Don't you remember when their eyes met for the very first time? It was a beautiful moment, right? Rebecca looked across the field and She was on her way to see Isaac for the first time. Their eyes met, and she says this, who is that man in the field coming to me? And what she said was, that's the one. Don't you remember that? But then in Genesis chapter 25, we see the relationship with God really taking root in Isaac's life. And remember, Isaac prays to God that he would bless Rebekah with a child, and she was barren. And then we find a, a long time passes But God responds with a blessing and gives them twins. Then in chapter 26, just a chapter ago, Isaac prays to God that he would continue to provide. And remember, the Lord provided land for Isaac's growing family. And it says in verse 23 of that chapter that the Lord appeared to Isaac and reaffirmed his blessing on their lives. Listen, Isaac responds by building an altar. Listen, this is a picture of intimacy, not just in a family, but also with God. And things look so promising. They had began so well. 
through all of this, I want you to see how closely they were walking with God. They started out well. But by the time we get to chapter 27, things change dramatically. You see, we're going to see in this chapter that even though Isaac and Rebekah started out well, they ended poorly. And that's not the point of the sermon, but I, I do want to challenge you in this room. Many of you have been walking with the Lord for some time. It's not about how you start so much as how you finish. Remember that. Some of you started out really well in your walk with the Lord. Continue to walk with him faithfully. That's a testimony to your family. Isaac and Rebecca, we're going to see they ended poorly. We're going to see a few things, a definition of a dysfunctional family, really. We're going to see some parents who have chosen one child over the other. They play favorites in their family. Never a good idea. We're going to see a dad who disregarded God's declared word and ignored it, really. And we're going to see a mom who schemes behind her husband and her older son to carry out the plans of God, but she uses some really unrighteous means to do so. We're going to see a younger brother who lives up to the name that he's been given as a deceiver, and we're going to see an older brother at the end of this who is consumed with envy and hatred, and he plots the murder of his younger brother. But here's what I want you to really see. Before you get caught up in all these characters, remember this. We're also going to see a God. We're going to see God in the middle of all of this. Here's what we're going to learn about him. He's sovereign over all this brokenness, and he works despite their best efforts to undermine his character and his word. If you're taking notes, maybe write this down. God's plan for our redemption marches forward despite human deceitfulness. A couple of things I want you to take from this. Believer, if you are walking with Jesus today and, and you're in fellowship with God, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to leave here today with a greater reassurance that God's plans cannot be undermined. And I don't know about you, but when we're walking in the world we live in today, I think we all need to hear that. God says, I'm going to establish my kingdom on this earth, and this world looks nothing like his kingdom, it would seem. So be encouraged. We're going to see brokenness, deceitfulness, deception, a broken family. But guess what? God's plans march forward. But skeptic, unbeliever, the person who's far from God, I want to confront you with this truth. Listen carefully. I want you to see that God can redeem your brokenness for his good purposes. He takes some people that are a mess in this chapter. And he turns all of that around for his glory and our good ultimately. And he can do the very same thing in your life no matter how broken you are. If you'll stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 27. I'm going to read just those first four verses to you. It says there, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could not see, he called his older son Esau and said to him, my son. He answered, here I am. He said, look, I am old and I don't know the day of my death, so now take your hunting gear, your quiver and bow, and I want you to go out in the field to hunt some game for me. And then make me a delicious meal that I love and bring it to me to eat so that I can bless you before I die. 
Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. God, we're grateful that you can redeem broken people. Broken people like we see in scripture today, but also broken people just like us. God, I pray that you'll restore our hope and that you'll call people to yourself by the power of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. We're gonna walk through a a bit of a character analysis all through these verses, and we're gonna see brokenness play out. Each character in this narrative illustrates the complete brokenness, not only of themselves, but really, we can relate to this because it's our complete brokenness as well. You could say it this way, this is the first truth we're gonna see. There are no heroes in the story of redemption, only sinners. There are no heroes in the story of redemption, only sinners. Now, you might say, well, well preacher, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back on you. Jesus is the hero. Yes, of course, Jesus is the exception. He is the hero in the story of redemption. But when we talk about ourselves, when we talk about humanity, there are no heroes. We like to put people on a pedestal, even Bible characters, but there are no heroes, only sinners. Excuse me. First, we're gonna see this. We just read about it. We see in Isaac this truth. Isaac knew God's word, but he was determined to have his own way. (coughs) Excuse me. For context here, you need to remember what happened in Genesis chapter 25, verses 23 through 26. This is when the Lord blessed Isaac and Rebekah with child. Turn back there with me. It's just one page ago. Notice this. The Lord said to her, said to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb. Two people will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. But here's the key. The older will serve the younger. Rebekah heard this. Isaac knew this. And yet, despite all of that, Isaac was bent on undermining God's word. Because if you read on a little bit further, you find that Esau is the older brother and Jacob is the younger brother. And so, as things play out, who's supposed to get the blessing? Jacob is. Jacob is, right? Jacob is the younger brother. And according to God's word, Jacob is supposed to get the blessing. But who does Isaac call into his tent? Esau. So what does he do? He tries to undermine everything that God had aimed and endeavored to do. The key is in verse four. Notice what Isaac says. He says, I have determined this. Your translation of scripture may capture it this way. There's a word there that that isn't uh, rendered in this translation I read from, but it's, he says, I'm gonna bless you from my soul, it says. My soul. And what this means is my whole being, I am bent on making this happen. Remember also in chapter 26, this was despite the poor character of Esau. In chapter 26, that chapter concludes with Esau marrying two Canaanite women, and it says that they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. In spite of all of that... Isaac was determined to not only undermine God's word, but bless this knucklehead. This decision would lead to the calamity of his entire family. 
His scheming would lead his entire family into the darkness of sin. Listen, friends. Disregarding God's spoken word has more consequences than just you. Disregarding God's spoken word can have catastrophic effects for those around you. Nothing could be truer than that in Isaac. But let's move on to Rebecca. I want you to note this about her. Rebecca knew God's word, but she resorted to some unrighteous means to help fulfill his word. Again, Isaac knew God's blessing. Isaac knew that the younger child was supposed to get the blessing. And Rebecca knew this as well. Let's look at verses 5 through 10. Now, Rebecca was listening to what Isaac said to his son Esau. The, the, the walls of those tents were pretty thin. Probably wasn't good to scheme when others could hear you. And so, no doubt, she heard. So, while Esau went to the field to hunt some game to bring in, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, uh, Listen, I heard your father talking with your brother Esau. He said, bring me game and make me a delicious meal for me to eat so that I can bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me and do what I tell you. I want you to go to the flock and bring me two choice young goats and I will make them into a delicious meal for your father, the kind that he loves. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob objects to this scheme. It would seem as though Jacob was uh, trying to hold on to some sense of righteousness here. Notice how he responds in verses 11 and 12. Jacob answered Rebekah, his mother, uh, Look, my brother Esau, he's a hairy man, but I'm a man with smooth skin. Suppose my father touches me, then I will be revealed to him as a deceiver and bring a curse rather than a blessing on myself. Understand something. Jacob's unwillingness here was not a moral unwillingness. He wasn't objecting to the immorality of the situation. He was objecting to getting caught. So don't put him on a pedestal just yet. And so Jacob gives in, though, and, and, but then Rebecca has an answer for this appearance issue. Notice what she does, beginning in verse 13. His mother said to him, your curse will be on me, my son. Just obey me and go get them for me. So he went and he got the goats and brought them to his mother. And his mother made the delicious food his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of her older son Esau, which were in the house, and had her younger son Jacob wear them. She put the skins of the young goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. Then she handed the delicious food and the bread she had made to her son Jacob. How absurd Jacob must have looked. Don't miss this. <laughs> uh, Rebecca was bent on making sure God's word was fulfilled. That she dressed her son up in this absurd outfit. One of my favorite Christmas movies of all time is The Christmas Story. Y'all know Ralphie and the Red Rider BB gun? One of my favorite scenes of that movie is when Ralphie on Christmas morning comes down the stairs wearing that pink bunny outfit. Remember this? And his mother says, oh, how sweet, how absurd Ralphie looked. That's what Jacob looked like. Don't forget this. This was a, a funny picture. He looked ridiculous. But the more absurd notion in all of this is the fact that Rebecca believed that God could not accomplish his plans without her help. That's the real 
bizarre truth in this passage. More than that, she thought sinful means were necessary to carry out all of these plans. She resorted to lying and deception to make sure that God had his way. You say, well, that's ridiculous. We would never do that. Oh, watch out. (laughs) You ever heard someone say, well, the ends justify the means? You heard that before? That's what happened here in this narrative. You know, in in June, Cherie and I are going to go to the Southern Baptist Convention. It's going to be down in New Orleans this year. And, And as a part of the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches, our church gives to Southern Baptist causes. We like the offering we're collecting now, and also the, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and we give a portion of everything that we receive directly to the, state, to the national convention. But every year, this convention meets, and, and we decide certain important things. Well, this year, we're going to decide something really unfortunate, and, and I'll cast my vote, and Cherie will cast her vote in this very unfortunate uh, ballot that's going to be put before us. We're going to disfellowship certain churches who are a part of our national convention. In other words, we're going to say, we're not going to associate with you any longer, and here's why. These churches have chosen to cover up issues of sexual and physical abuse. Uh, These things that that the pastors and leaders of the church themselves have done, and they cover these things up in their past. Why? Because they want to make sure that the reputation of their church is not tarnished. He said, that's absurd. Why would they do that? Why? Because they say the ends justify the means. They say we could never let the reputation of our church be tarnished because we can't undermine the mission of God around us. Listen, be careful. Be careful. We do this. We justify sin to carry out sometimes godly ends. That's exactly what Rebecca thought she was doing here. She thought she was doing the right thing. But listen, God does not need your sinful activities to accomplish his perfect ends. So the brokenness has unraveled from Isaac to Rebekah. But Jacob was not just a pawn in this scheme. Notice this. Jacob knew God's word, but he persisted in his sin. I want you to see that Jacob lied three times deliberately in the rest of this narrative. Lie number one, notice this, verses 18 and 19. He begins very subtly. When he came in to his father, he said, my father. And he answered, here I am. Who are you, my son? Remember, Isaac was blind. We find find that out in verse one. Jacob replied to his father, I'm Esau. Your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may bless me. I wonder if his voice was a little bit shaky at that moment. Did he say that with some confidence or was he a little bit unsure? Am I really going to get by with this? He might have thought. So notice lie number two because I think this answers that question. Verse 20 But Isaac said to his son, how did you ever find it so quickly, my son? He, in other words, he knew something was up. He replied, because the Lord your God made it happen for me. Don't miss the weight of what just happened. Jacob invoked the name of God over his deception. That, that, 
that name, the Lord your God. The Lord, you'll note, is in all capital letters. This is the personal name of God that Jacob invoked over his deception. This was blasphemy to the hilt. There was no shame in his lying, clearly. But notice lie number three. Isaac knew something was up, so he asked Jacob to come closer. Notice the brevity of his final lie in verse 24. Maybe he's consumed by guilt at this point. Notice what it says. Again, he asked, are you really my son Esau? And he replied very simply, I am. You can see almost Jacob slinking into the corner, into the shadows of that moment, and wondering, am I really going to get by with this? Maybe he was consumed by shame like Peter was after Peter had lied three times and said, what, I deny Jesus. Don't you remember as that, that cock crowed on that terrible morning after Peter had lied those three times and it reminded Peter in that instant of his sin and his deception. Perhaps in this moment, there wasn't a rooster crowing in the background, but maybe this simple statement, I am your son. Maybe he knew the shame. Obviously, Isaac bought it because he went forward with blessing. We see that in verses 27, 28, and 29. I won't read that blessing to you, but I do want you to see in verse 29 what Isaac does. He says, may people serve you and nations bow in worship to you. Now, don't, remit, don't forget this, that when the blessing was initially given, the Lord said to Isaac and Rebekah, the younger son, or the older son will serve the younger. There was nothing mentioned about nations. It was only related to this family. And so again, going back to Isaac and his being bent on undermining the word of God, he takes this blessing and he escalates it even further. And it really shows us the complete brokenness of this family. Don't forget, this is Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these forefathers of the faith, and they are completely broken. We've seen how Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob were incredibly and hopelessly broken people, but the situation doesn't spin out of control until we get to Esau. Notice this about him. Esau knew God's word, but he denied its truthfulness. In verses 30 through 40, we see Esau show up. You can see the, the tension in this situation in verse 30. It says, as soon as Isaac left, Esau shows up. No sooner had he left the tent, here comes Esau. It says in verse 31, he, he also had made some delicious food. And he says, let my father get up and eat some of this game so that you may bless me. But his father said to him, who are you? He answered, I am Esau, your firstborn son. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably, it says. This old man, this blind, elderly man began to tremble as he realized what had happened. Who was it then, he said, who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came in, and I blessed him. Indeed, he will be blessed when Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, and he said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he replied, Your brother came deceitfully, and he took your blessing. 
And so he said in verse 36, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me twice now. He took my birthright, and look, now he has taken my blessing. And he said, Haven't you saved something for me? A couple of things I want you to see in this. Number one, Again, Esau's caught off guard. He shouldn't have been caught off guard. Remember, he sold his birthright. We said that a couple chapters ago, right? He gives in, and he, he says, I'm very hungry. And so Jacob fixed this meal for him, and, and he sold his birthright for a pot of soup. He shouldn't have been surprised by this. But guess what? Esau also grew up knowing the word of God. No doubt, with the closeness of this family, we see all along he had been told what God had said. He was caught off guard by the fact that God had done what he said he would do. And so he's desperately broken. He says, isn't there something left for me? And all he's left with is really an anti-blessing. <laughs> you notice this in verses 39 and 40, how sad this is. His father Isaac answered him, look, your dwelling place will be away from the richness of the land, away from the dew of the sky above. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother. But when you rebel, you will break his yoke from your neck. This was nothing like a blessing. It sounds like a curse, in fact. How desperate Esau was in his brokenness. Everyone in this story sought the blessing of God without bending the knee to God. Make no mistake, at any point in time, any of these individuals could have turned all of this over to the Lord, but they persisted in their brokenness. So what were they left with? The second truth in verses 41 through 46, as sinners, they bore the consequences of their deception. There were real consequences to their actions. Yes, God is good, but there are consequences. Listen to verses 41 and 42. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob Isaac, we see, was left with a divided family. That was his consequence. His, his family was completely broken. You know, funerals can be kind of weird sometimes. Uh, people's, pastors debate, would I rather do a funeral or a wedding? Well, the circumstance depends on the situation, really. Uh, sometimes funerals can be really awkward when there's this brokenness within a family. I, I tell you what, I, I've done a lot of funerals here at First Baptist Church, and I, it has been the greatest blessing because I've not seen that brokenness. As we've celebrated the homegoing of a child of God, we have come together, and it's been a celebration, and I've been able to walk through that genuinely. But you've seen this before, right? You've seen a broken family at a funeral. It's not a pretty picture. Imagine Isaac what he's left with here. His two sons, one of them at, at the other's throat. Complete division. But we also see this about Esau. Esau was left consumed by bitterness. It says there in verse 41, Esau was determined in his heart. 
There's that same phrase again. Remember, Isaac determined in his heart, in his soul, that he would undermine the word of God, and everything culminates now with Esau determining in his heart that he would murder his brother. Don't you see how that all played out? Everything had backfired on Isaac and Esau. But now listen to Jacob's lot in verses 42 through 45. It says, when the words of her older son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she summoned her younger son Jacob and said to him, listen, your brother Esau is consoling himself by planning to kill you. So now, my son, listen to me. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. I don't know about you, but if I'm Jacob at that moment, mama said, listen to me before it got me in this mess. I'm not so sure I'm going to listen to mama again, but he listens to her. And she says, I want you to stay with him for a few days, that's key, until your brother's anger subsides, until your brother's rage turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send for you and I will bring you back from there. Why should I lose you both in one day? Notice this, a couple things. First of all, Jacob. Jacob was left alienated from his family. He was cast aside. Notice in verse 44, that key phrase, a few days. Well, if you read ahead, (laughs) poor old Jacob doesn't spend a few days with his uncle Laban. No, he spends a long time, years in fact. And it's not a pretty time. We're gonna get there and we're gonna see it. It doesn't turn out well. In fact, Jacob the deceiver is deceived. What in a few days? In verse 45, we see this, that Rebecca says, I'm going to send for you. He get, she gives this assurance to her son, I'm going to send for you because I don't want to lose both of my sons in one day. But we find in chapter 31, someone sends for Jacob when he's at Laban's house, but it's not Rebecca. Guess who it is? The Lord sends for Jacob. Why is that important? Well, The saddest lot, the saddest consequence in all of this really lies with poor Rebecca. Notice this. Rebecca was left with a tarnished legacy. Again, I told you, we start out well, that's one thing, but be careful that we don't end poorly. Rebecca had ended poorly, and Scripture illustrates that In verse 46, it just says, Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm sick of my life. I'm sick of my life because of these Hethite girls. If Jacob marries someone from around here like these Hethite girls, what good is my life? And those are the last spoken words from Rebecca. Words of bitterness, grief, and sadness. And that's it. What an awful legacy. What a way to be left in a miserable existence on this earth. Rebecca did, in fact, lose both of her sons, and she is silenced for the rest of the narrative. This was Rebecca, friends. This was the chosen wife for Isaac. And yet, consumed by deception and broken by sin, she wouldn't be mentioned again. In fact, in chapter 35, we find that Jacob would reconcile with his dad, Abraham, but Rebekah would never see Jacob's face again. What do we make of all this? 
What do we do with this? This is, this is awful. It's hard to find encouragement in this. Two things are true. Two points of application, real life application, things you can take home with you. Listen carefully. Number one, don't overcomplicate the will of God. Don't make it complicated. God had a declared will. He made this plain and obvious to Isaac and Rebekah. He said, this is what's going to happen. And guess what? It happened. But all throughout this, these broken, sinful people, they bore the consequence of their rebellion. Why? Because they made it complicated. They made it complicated. God's will does not have to be a mystery to us, friends. Uh, people come to me and they say, listen, I just want to make sure I make the right decision in this situation in my life. I, I want to know what God's will is for my life. And I always take people to the Word of God. God tells us how to live. One of the first questions I ask someone when they come to me with this quandary, I say, how much time are you spending in the Word of God? It sounds strange. It sounds bizarre, but it's really not all that bizarre. Why? Because I'm asking them, how much do you know the revealed will of God, how you're supposed to live your life? It's plain. It's clear. Don't overcomplicate it. Walk with him. But number two, trust that God's plans for redemption will not fail. Ultimately, everything that Rebecca did and Jacob did and Isaac did and Esau did, listen, all of this ultimately was rooted in a lack of trust in who God is in his character and in his word. So my question for you is this. If you're living with some uncertainty, if you're living consumed by worry and fear, ultimately that exposes this, a lack of trust in God. If you numb your pain with sin, it reveals a lack of trust in God and his character. God will come through. We read the last pages of this wonderful book, and what does it tell us? God wins, no matter what. God's plan for our redemption marches forward despite human deceitfulness. I want to leave you with this. This plays out most clearly in the final days of Jesus' earthly life. God has always worked through these terrible means and he has redeemed sinful people and he has done his work of redemption despite that. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 24. Again, the last days of Jesus' life on this earth. It says, at the last supper, Jesus says this to Judas, woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Deception. Deceitfulness. Jesus calls it out. And guess what we find in Matthew 26, 48 and 49? Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Deceitfulness, deception. Guess what? God's plan for our redemption marched forward despite deceitfulness. Let's keep looking at it. Matthew 26, 59. The chief priests, they sought false testimony that they might put Jesus to death. They looked for false witnesses, deception, deceitfulness, thinking they were doing the right thing. Listen carefully. Two false witnesses come forward. But God's plan for our redemption marches forward despite human deceitfulness. Matthew 27, Pilate. He seems like this innocent pawn in all of this, but remember what happened there. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood, and he handed him over to be crucified. 
Pilate had been politically manipulated by all the people involved. But guess what? God's plan for our redemption marches forward despite human deceitfulness. Peter sums this up appropriately at Pentecost, how encouraging this is. After everything has transpired, Jesus was crucified at the hands of wicked people. But guess what? He was, he was raised on the third day, and so Peter is able to say this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Don't miss that. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, deceitfulness, deception, it's right there. Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God, it says, raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God works through deceitful people to accomplish his redemptive plans. Two questions for you. Believer, are you restored with hope and trust in God's redemptive plans? Don't overcomplicate the will of God. Trust it. Restore your trust in it. Unbeliever, does this remind you of your need for a redeemer? This was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we've seen again and again how broken they were. You and I are just as broken and hopeless in our sin. Like poor old Esau, we're the ones coming back and saying, Lord, don't you have anything left for us? And guess what he gave us? He gave us Jesus. He gave us the greatest blessing we could ever have. All that's left is for you to trust him. Trust him as your redeemer. At any point, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, or Jacob could have turned all of this over to the Lord, but they didn't. They never bent a knee towards God. I invite you to do that. I invite you to let us know that you want to respond to this invitation to trust him. You can come forward while we're singing, or you can fill out a blue card that's in the pew back and let us know you want to have a conversation. You can stop me at the, at the front door there. I would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to trust Jesus as your Savior.